Welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm Brian. That's Chris. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Brian? I am very well this morning, um, which we are recording in the morning. I've been yelled at before for giving that away, but I don't think really anyone cares. Um, <laughs> everyone who's listening to this probably knows who I am at this point, but maybe they don't know who you are. So please introduce yourself. You can do a better job than I can. Yeah, I'm doubtful. But um, yeah. so hi, everyone. I am uh, Chris Ferdinandi. And I help people learn vanilla JavaScript. Uh, so my whole kind of focus or kind of the thing I evangelize constantly is that there's maybe a simpler and more resilient way to uh, to build things for the web. There's, and you have a lot of stuff, I guess is the easiest way to say it. Like you're working on a lot of things. You did a great job explaining it concisely. Um, I'm interested in kind of like the... Give us the whole thing. Like, what's the suite of projects? I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I do have. I have a lot going on. So, um, uh, so the thing I think most people know me for. Um, every weekday, I publish um, a short uh, email newsletter over at GoMakeThings.com, um, where I share um, just kind of random tips, tricks, ideas, cool stuff I've found from around the web. Um, these are the kinds of things you can just easily consume while having your morning coffee. Um, I also have a suite of eBooks and courses over at vanillajsguides.com and an online, I call it semi-asynchronous uh, project-based workshop, uh, Vanilla JavaScript Academy at vanillajs.com, um, where we spend uh, a handful of weeks together building cool projects and um, really just kind of learning how to solve problems with code. Hmm. I want to get back to, I'm going to start with the first thing you said, but the, the mm -hmm. asynchronous uh, learning is interesting also. Yeah. Um, so the, the weekly kind of uh, newsletter, am yeah. I thinking of it right? Yeah. So it's actually, it's every weekday. So five days a week. Um, oh my God. <laughs> Like yeah, <laughs> it's um you it so you would think it's a lot. Um and it kind of is, but um I found it's an easier cadence to keep up than once a week or once a month, um, just because it becomes a habit and you become really efficient at writing when huh. you write every weekday. Um so um like these are not long form essays most of the time. Every now and then they are. Like you'll get on a tear about something and I'll just sit down for an hour and like crank out like a, a short story. <laughs> but um, yeah, for the most part, it's, um, you know, if you imagine something that might be like a big in-depth article and you break it up into a few small parts over a couple of days, that's usually the length. Um, and uh, I um, I was pushed by uh, a uh, actually a couple of folks I know who run their own small businesses to try doing the daily writing. And I was really, really hesitant um, in large part because I thought no one would want to read my thoughts that frequently. Um, but the, I think the really interesting shift that happens is because everything necessarily becomes a lot shorter because you just can't keep up a volume. If it doesn't um, people like it better. Um, <laughs> it's easier to read. It's not the kind of thing that comes in and then you're like, Oh, I'll set this aside till when I get back to it later. Like you can read it just a couple minutes. Um, people seem to retain the stuff in it a lot better because it's shorter. Like you're not trying to cram as much stuff, uh, you know, into your brain, uh, in one sitting. And, um, uh, I tend to get a lot of questions. Like if I'm writing a series of articles, I'll get a lot of questions early on, which, uh, um, help me clarify the things I'm explaining later. So it's a really nice kind of back and forth. Like I get a lot out of it as someone who teaches people because I get a lot of, a lot of questions, a lot of feedback, and that helps me do what I do better. 
Do you remember when you first, so you were talking to small business owners and they kind mm-hmm. of inspired you yeah. to, to write regularly or daily really. Um, do you remember like when you first started, uh, were you terrified? Like, yes. And and even now, like, how do you, cause I'm, I'm sure, um, the reason I'm asking is I'm sure other people are kind of in the same place is like, they're thinking, should I start a newsletter? Should I not? Uh, and how am I going to come up with things to write about to this, this particular community? Yeah. Yeah. So just, um, uh, just to name names. So uh, Jonathan Stark over at jonathanstark.com and Philip Morgan at philipmorganconsulting.com uh, were the two folks who really encouraged me to do this. Jonathan was my business coach at the time. Um, and Philip was just a, a, I shouldn't say just, he's a friend. Um, and uh, so they had for like weeks, maybe months, been pushing me to switch my newsletter, which was at 38 subscribers at that point, um, to daily. And I'm like, look, man, there's just no way I can keep up that cadence. I can't come up with that many ideas. I, this will not work. And they're like, just try it for like a month, two weeks. If you hate it, you can always switch back. Like you only have 38 subscribers who cares. It's not like you really have anything to lose. You know, um, they were a lot nicer about it than I just described it. Um, so I was like, all right, if I can come up with a month of ideas in 10 minutes, I'll give it a go. And so I just sat down with a piece of paper, started a timer on my phone and jotted down a list. And I think I came up with like 25 or 28. It was like, it wasn't quite a month, but it was close enough. Um, and like, it was really, really simple things like how to get an element by class in the DOM, you know, or how to add or remove a class from an element. Like not like everything you ever wanted to know, DOM manipulation, like just really short focused kind of stuff. And, um, uh, really weird thing happened. So I started, I started writing. I did it for a week in that week. My list that had been stuck at 38 subscribers for like two months, um, doubled to 60, um, 70, something like that. It doubled. Um, I'm bad at math. 70. There we go. Um, and, um, I lost a few folks, but I, I gained some new folks and I started getting questions back like, Oh, this is cool. I don't understand this part. Can you explain it more? And so it, um, after by the end of the month, I had I had started a to-do list of article ideas as they came to me because I started getting questions back. And instead of ending with zero when I was done with my 28 kind of original items, I now had a list of 50 topics because people kept writing back with questions. And so I've heard it described as this, it's like a flywheel effect where once it starts moving, it kind of like propels itself a little bit. Um, and so the entire rest of my business exists because Philip and Jonathan convinced me to write every weekday. Um, Because these questions started to like, I'd noticed trends. So then I started like putting together some short guides around like broader topics. So I'd like take some of my newsletters, clean them up a little bit, mash them up into a book. Then I started having people say, hey, I learned better with video. Can you make some video courses? So then I made video versions of the books. And then people finished all the books and they're like, I have memorized all of these methods and I know exactly how to use them. But when I sit down to start a project, I have no idea how to get going. Can you help me with that? And that led to like a whole workshop that was focused on building projects. And um, yeah, it's um, it's been this really weird organic thing that all starts with the newsletter decision. Um, yeah. And at this point, I have a list of about 100 article ideas and I know half of them I'll just never get to. Like sure. I will, I will die before I get to write them. <laughs> Well, you're probably, I mean, um, you know, if you have an idea, wherever it is you are doing, you're either writing it in your phone or, you know, scratching it on pieces of paper, like that would be, and then it just goes into, 
your note taking <laughs> app of choice. Um, yep. I mean, I'm speaking from experience, you know, like we, um, the, you know, the log rocket content, it's a different animal, but, um, there's a really kind of linear relationship mm-hmm. between traffic and, and regular posting mm-hmm. cadence. Um, yeah, for sure. So I think sometimes, you know, people who are first, um, who are first starting out or considering um, going into business for themselves, doing this, you know, teaching JavaScript, being an instructor, the um, the business side or the marketing side is is maybe like I don't want to say foreign, but it's not something that you that's not something that you were doing before, right? Yeah. Um, so that's why I asked the question. And also, it's, it's a just, little terrifying to yeah. be honest. It was for a long time one of my like my biggest hesitancies about doing this and everybody's kind of mileage will vary, but I will say the thing that really helped me kind of get comfortable with it was, um, first of all, you don't have to do everything. I think there's kind of this, when you start off, there's this perspective that like, okay, I'm marketing. I need to run ads. I need to, you know, just all these things. And what I found is if you pick a couple of things that you're comfortable with that work well for you. You don't have to do all the things. So like for me, it's stuff like Brian, what you and I are doing now, just chatting. Like I can, I can talk all day long. It's like, (laughs) I'm very chatty. Um, so this is, this is super easy and fun. And then the newsletter, and I don't really do any other marketing beyond these two things. Um, and, uh, um, I choose these two things because I enjoy them. Um, uh, I know a lot of folks really enjoy like conference talks and meetups. Um, I get like kind of anxious in large social situations, even pre-COVID. Um, and so, um, you know, for me, that's just not really my favorite type of marketing. So I don't really do much of it. Um, and I, I think, you know, for folks who are listening, who are kind of thinking about this, do not feel like you have to do everything. And then um, I think the other piece here is I always, before kind of having my own business, thought of marketing as kind of this icky thing. And I think the reason I felt that way is because it often is. But again, uh-huh. it doesn't have as, to be. Like, as a marketer, sorry to interrupt. As a marketer, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It can be kind of uh, kind of icky. Um, yeah, like just just because most of your experiences with marketing are like shady marketers pushing like crap yeah. products on people who don't need them, like you don't have to do that. And so, like one of my um, like one of the things I do is like sometimes I'll just go on Twitter and search for JavaScript, and then if people have questions, I'll answer them. Uh-huh. And like. If I have an article about it, I'll link to it. If I don't, I'll write one and link to it. That's technically marketing, but it's really just me like helping people with their problems. Um, you know, hundred percent. Like I, I, I think all of those things, um, I agree with, and I think we've done. And it's like, there's first of all that the whole message resonates with the audience. Um, yeah. and I can say that after like four plus years of doing this, that like the in a lot of ways, less is more like if you, but maybe more importantly, um, provide value, which is an annoying thing to say, <laughs> like d- give people stuff they would actually use and like, um, mm-hmm. but you don't really have to do much else. Like th- yeah. a lot of it does happen organically. Um, so if like, you're feeling really overwhelmed, like, should I think about Twitter ads? And I mean, you know, I've seen them and maybe, but I don't know. I think the easiest way to do it is like get people to like you and trust. And the way you do that is yeah. like, I do the same thing. Like if someone has a question about, you know, a blog post that we put out and you know, mm-hmm. it's not that hard to just follow Twitter and answer personally and be like, this is the author who wrote it. Here's what happened. Or if we screwed up, which I talk about, uh, maybe too often, like if we screw up and someone comes back and it's like, oh, we messed up. That's 
uh, a bummer, but thank you for pointing it out. Like, how do we work that? And then almost everyone comes back and it's like, oh, no problem. Like, that's, I love the blog and that's what happened. Like, it's really rare that, that anything kind of negative happens. And anyway, going back to the point, um, there is kind of a, you're not always guaranteed that like, if you build it, they will come, but, um, kind of, you, you know, one other thing, um, you know, you kind of mentioned the, like help people and like give them things they need. Um, one, one thing I don't talk about as often as I should, but so I have, um, anybody who buys my stuff gets access to, um, uh, like a Slack community that I have set up. And, you know, if I were doing it today, it might end up being discord, but you know, same idea, just like a, a chat space. You could even do like an old school internet forum if that's more your speed. But, um, uh, it was originally like a nice value add for folks. Like, hey, if you have questions about what you're learning here, you have a direct line of contact. Like we can we can chat, I can answer your questions. And so that was, that was kind of helpful. Um, but it's become this place now where anytime I'm unsure what to do with my business, I have like literally a group of customers who are hanging out waiting to talk to me and I can ask them questions and get immediate responses and like gut check things like, um, and I'd never be like, Hey, should I run Twitter ads? But I might say something like, Hey, when you're not here, where do you hang out to learn more about front end development or whatever the topic happens to be? Um, and they'll be like, Oh, you know, I, maybe it is Twitter. Maybe it's some other place. Maybe there's another community. Maybe there's a podcast they listen to all the time that, you know, would be a great, I, you know, a great place for me to like run an ad or something like that. Um, but, um, yeah, just like having built, it's such a, a cliche at this point, but building a community is a really powerful thing, especially if you are like a business of one or like a smaller kind of company or organization. I think we're hitting all of the, the important cliches uh early on in this episode because i say yeah, i forgot my bingo card but somebody yeah. is like okay they, uh, brian said provide value if you build it they will come which is i'm not even sure half the audience will understand what i'm talking about and then of course build a community um mm-hmm. but i mean it, in a lot of like it uh, we're not lying i mean it does it does work um i am it's funny like our uh when we were thinking about starting this podcast, for example, um, we would ask our own engineers, you know, like what the same thing kind of, you would ask that Slack community, like what, where do you guys hang? So I would ask what kind of podcast do you like? And I got, um, or do you listen to? And I got like zero helpful answers. It was all like, I'm, I really love 18th century history podcasts. And I'm like, cool, man, but that does, this does not help me at all. I mean, I believe you. Um, but in general, like, I think that those, um, <laughs> those discords or those, those uh, like private Slack communities. Cause like now I'm starting to see them tiered. Like you've got the, like the free ones that um, if you're really lucky or if it's a really popular community, there's like 50,000 people in this and it becomes just totally unmanageable, even if you have moderators. Um, and then you have kind of like the paid version, which like, let's say if you're on Substack, you know, mm-hmm. um, for like 15 bucks a month and that's like 5,000 people and that's better. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's still requires a lot of like, that's a whole job in and of itself. And that's not really what, like you didn't, (laughs) you didn't sign up. Like the whole point wasn't to be a community moderator, you know? Yeah. Yeah. My, um, having a community that's too big has always been my fear. Um, it sometimes feels a little bit like, um, 
you know, people tend to worry about scale when they're like just building a project that has no customers yet. And it's like, it's, it's like, it's important to think about, but it's probably too early to worry about. Um, I've been at this for like five or six years now. And, um, I still haven't hit like a community size where I'm like, okay, this is like drinking from a fire hose. This doesn't really work anymore. Um, uh, I also really strongly believe that you get the community you deserve. And so, um, some of the worst communities I've been in have almost no presence from um, like the person who started it or like there's no like expectation setting or like, uh, you know, um, like norm modeling for lack of a better word. Like I have, um, I have a code of conduct that people have to agree to. And I am very, very strict about um, both pointing out when people deviate from it or like booting people entirely and refunding them for anything they've purchased. Um, if it's like either too egregious or like, um, you know, just kind of a recurring issue. Um, and you know, a lot of times like people do things that like, they don't, they just don't realize like they're coming across a certain way or like, um, you know, like I, just as an example, like around diversity topics, um, a lot of folks who, um, you know, like I sometimes I have students who are, they're white, they're male, maybe they grow up in an area where, you know, they are not really exposed to a diverse audience and they'll use phrases or say things that they don't, and I'm not like not racial slurs or anything like that, but they may something say something that they don't realize is like problematic. Um, and my community has gotten really good about like pointing those things out for me if I don't see it. Um, in large part because I made a very strong like point of modeling the kind of behavior I wanted to see early on. Um, uh, I've been in other community, and I don't I don't have a moderator. I did for a while. Um, now it's just me, and um, we have I think there's like six thousand people in the Slack. Although to be fair, on any given week, only about like one to three hundred of them are actually active. Um, but I've been in Slacks like you've described, or communities like you've described, where there's just thousands of people firing questions into the void and no one ever responds to any of them. Well, that's that the sucks. hard part is, is like there, once you get that, that big, there's a lot of people asking and not in, like, it's, it's not really pra uh, practical for that many people to give. Yeah. I don't think I'm sure that there's a book on this somewhere, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and it, it feels like one of those things, like growing a community is actually harder than it sounds like it would be. Um, yeah. uh, so I, um, I worried about it for a while and then I realized it's just not a problem I expect to have for a while, but I feel like I'll start to get a sense for when it's happening and I don't really have a plan for how to deal with it yet. Um, but it is definitely something that's kind of like always in the back of my mind a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I ready. Are you ready for another cliche? I think it's I the, there's a, there's an aspect of kind of building in public. There it is, uh, to that, or like, I don't know what's going to happen to this and, and you know, as long as people are, are, you know, here for the right reasons and are uh, behaving themselves, um, mm -hmm. then sure, then it should go pretty well. And awesome. it seems like it is for you. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So far. Well, that's, that's all really any of us can ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So let's pivot from, uh, awesome. <laughs> let's pivot from uh, business stuff. Um, and I want to move a little bit to kind of what is it that, um, people should know about like, what are the things, so you're the Java, the vanilla JavaScript guy, 
that's how I would think about it. Is that is that accurate? And yeah, well, that's the- how I describe myself. I didn't coin the term. I didn't make the joke website, um, but I do spend an absurd amount of time evangelizing it. So, um, yeah. Okay. I think that's accurate. So, I've heard other people refer to me as that. And so I was like, oh, I like that. I'll, I'll go with that. That works. Um, all right. So maybe there are two parts, right? Like give us the quick, because for someone who's not familiar, like why, <laughs> why does it so exciting? And then um, I guess the second part of the question is like right now, like what are the things that you're kind of excited about um, yeah. or at least interested in? And there are sometimes those can be different. Yeah, sure. So at a, just at a super high level. So, um, if you've never heard the term vanilla JavaScript before, um, it is, uh, it's just a phrase that means platform native or like baked into the browser JavaScript APIs, methods, things like that. Um, and, uh, I know a lot of folks who hate the term because they're like, that's just JavaScript. And they're right. But um, <laughs> these days when you search for how to do X with JavaScript, you end up getting a ton of like React, jQuery, underscore, Angular, uh, Vue kind of solutions. And vanilla JavaScript kind of became this um, this nice little shorthand for filtering out all that stuff. Like you could do Boolean searches that say, ignore all these phrases, but that's like an unending task to keep up with them all. Um, so just tacking vanilla JavaScript or vanilla JS onto a search, like cuts most of that stuff out. Um, and it started off as a joke. Someone made this website, vanilla-js.com, um, that positions it as like this hot new framework (laughs) used by all the other frameworks. (laughs) Um, but, um, the writing is so dry and so like serious that, um, if you're not versed in new England style sarcasm, it probably doesn't like. Like I picked up on it because like that's the way my friends and I talk to each other all right. the time. Yeah. But um, I, I see a lot of beginners who are like, I installed the the file from the CDN, but nothing's loading and I don't, this doesn't seem to be working. Like what's going on? And so, um, uh, yeah, I, I spend a, a, a small amount of time every now and then like f- seeing these like tweets on Twitter and like trying to like, explain to people what's actually going on. Um, but so um, I... Uh, that's a tangent. I digress. Um, the, uh, the reason I got into this in the first place is I learned JavaScript through jQuery. And at the time I was really, um, like digging into web performance and, uh, Dave Rupert, um, a developer out in Texas had written this whole thing about how he dropped jQuery for browser native JavaScript. And, um, like shaved several seconds off like start render time and load time on his site. Um, And part of that was because WordPress loves to load jQuery in the header and do all sorts of like render blocking terribleness. But part of it was he stripped out a bunch of abstractions um, and the site started to run faster. So I, I started digging into this and um, uh, since then a lot has changed. Um, Uh, browsers pulled in a ton of features inspired by jQuery. So things that used to be really hard are now really, really easy with just like what's, what's baked into the browser. Um, and then we started to see the rise of frameworks. And so for a handful of years now, I've spent a lot of time talking about how these tools are awesome for a very specific group of things for which they were built. And they are absolutely terrible for both developers and the people who use the things they build for a whole large set of other things. And we, my big argument is that we overuse a lot of the big libraries that are most popular today, and we use them for applications for which they're not the best choice. Um, what do, what's your what's your hypothesis for why? 
Yeah. Um, so I think there's a few things kind of going on here. Um, uh, just generally as an industry, I see a few kind of, um, a few kind of things. I see this move in cycles. Um, so, um, uh, one of them is I think there's a little bit of a, like if it's good enough for, for like Facebook or Twitter, it's good enough for me kind of thing, you know, like, well, Facebook uses react. So it must be, you know, look at all the amazing things they build. So like, it must be great for me too. And Facebook has a whole suite of engineering problems that maybe don't necessarily apply to the thing that you're building. Um, uh, the other, I think piece here, um, is, uh, there's a little bit of, um, like marketing going on. So people who build new things go out to conferences and show, you know, podcasts and, and talk about them. Um, and then if they get enough hype, our industry seems to be, especially front end engineers get really, really fickle and love to jump to like the new exciting thing because just, and I speak as a front end engineer myself, like we love to learn new things and play around with cool, new shiny toys and stuff. Um, and so I, I've noticed with like things like Angular and Vue and React, um, there's been kind of this thing now where um, you get a bunch of developers excited about these tools. And then companies are like, oh, if we want to hire the best engineers, we need to use the tools that they're really excited to work with. So you start seeing job descriptions looking for these tools. And then companies are like, oh, my competitor over there is using this tool. We need to make sure we're using it too so that we can compete for developers. And then before you know it, a whole industry is using a small set of tools um, because of kind of this this hype cycle. And it's not that React and Vue and Angular are bad. They are very, very good at the things they were specifically built to do. Um, uh, you know, state-based UI in a very complex DOM-heavy environment. Um, but um, most of what we build is not nearly as complex as these tools require. And if you look at a lot of the HTML that kind of gets spit out in something like Facebook or React, uh, I'm sorry, Facebook or Twitter, there's a reason why like a virtual DOM heavy library probably gives them better performance and makes it easier to work with. You know, they have like a bunch of different engineering teams working on a subset of products that all get cobbled into one UI. Um, you know, a lot of the things that we build don't kind of don't require that. Um, and then the other angle here too is like, um, I, I know a lot of agencies use these tools. And I think the thing that happens there is if you're going to take the time to invest in kind of training your, um, your staff on a particular tool set and you build a bunch of kind of like tooling around that, things you maybe use on a lot of projects you work on for clients, it makes sense to keep using that over and over again because you're incentivized to build things as quickly as possible, um, you know, for your clients um, and you know, you want to get a good ROI on this tooling that you've built. Um, yeah. So I think there's a whole bunch of issues that kind of, kind of happen here. And then I also, I mean, I could, sorry, ramble on and on about this, but um, I think there's also a bit of a false narrative around the developer experience, which is not to say the developer experience isn't important. It really, really is. But um, I hear this perspective all the time that these tools make it easier for developers to build things. And because that is true, we can focus on building all these great features for our clients and our customers or users and kind of that experience that we get gets passed on to the users. And I would argue that the developer experience isn't actually better for at least a, a not insignificant subset of uh, 
people who work on the front end and that it rarely gets passed along to the users as a net win for them. Um, in fact, I think often the opposite is true. Um, and I can come up with some very specific counter arguments for when it actually has made the user experience better. So I can I can argue with myself here on this one if you'd like me to. No, no, you're not alone. I mean, I feel like that happens. Uh, hey, I've, I definitely have said before, it's what keeps me personally in the you know in business is like those kinds of, there's actually no real answer for this, but if you present these two sides and... Um, yeah, I mean, I have, I have, in doing, you know, prep for this episode, I started thinking about like, um, you know, the big three frameworks or the big four, because um, we, uh, we left out Svelte, which maybe we shouldn't, um, but and I was like, maybe we should. I'm sure someone else has already thought about this, like vanilla JavaScript as the fifth, and you know, maybe that's more appealing if you don't necessarily want to use. Um, I don't really know the best way to put it. Uh, a library that that comes from a large tech company with baggage. Right. Huh? That's that's pretty. That's a very diplomatic way to phrase. How that, about right? that? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean I, that seems like a plus to me. If you, no, nah, I'm going to get so much. Well, I probably will. I mean, how, how could you not? <laughs> Point. I mean, so um, yeah, no, and I actually didn't bring up Svelte for a very specific reason because I see Svelte. And new kid on the block, Astro and static site generators. I see them as kind of a different, a different category. Um, for me, they're actually one of the things I'm most excited about for like what's what's coming next. They're in my mind kind of the um uh they're a good leap forward, I think is a a right way to describe it. Not perfect, but I think potentially a good leap forward. And we can well, talk about that if you'd like. I would very much like to. Let's pull on that okay. Yeah. So the the thing that just at a super high level, like the one or two liner on this is that I think the problem with a lot of the modern client side libraries that we use is not only are they they big, they're just there are a lot of JavaScript that gets sent to the user. And that has a bunch of performance implications just because of how JavaScript is downloaded compiled and parsed compared to say CSS or HTML or image files. Um, but JavaScript is also really, really fragile. It's way more prone to broke, breaking than HTML and CSS are. Um, and, uh, you know, if the browser doesn't understand something in your HTML or CSS, it just kind of ignores it and moves on. But with JavaScript, it's like, ah, nope, this whole file's garbage. Just like toss it out. We're done here. Yeah. Um, and so there's this new set of tools um, that I'm really excited to start seeing more of. Um, and I kind of put them in, in maybe two categories. So the first is micro libraries. So I'm starting to see more, more front end tools that mimic the approaches of bigger tools like Vue or React, but do it with a much smaller footprint, maybe shed a few of the features that are like nice to haves or like, Hey, Facebook needs that. Most people don't. Um, and they end up with something that's both smaller and faster. Um, and I think the like the shining example here is probably Preact, which is one tenth the size of React, um, uses the same API, including you know React hooks. Um, it's literally like three kilobytes, which is absolutely amazing um, after minifying and gzipping. And um, not only is it a smaller package, but because it has fewer abstractions baked into it, um, it actually. Uh, not just renders faster, but responds to data um, data changes. That's reactivity engine is faster as well um, by a 
quite a bit. It's um, it's about four times faster than React in in terms of implementing UI updates when state change. Um, uh, and I can, you know, if if you want an article on that for the show notes, I have a you know some research that was done, some data I can I can share with you to link to. Um, the um, uh, you know, so that's that's kind of one one bucket. So you've got Preact, um, Evan Yu, uh, the guy who built Vue, um, uh, recently released something called Petite Vue, which is a small subset of Vue that's really intended for more of the progressive enhancement type stuff that um, is a very common use case for Vue and doesn't require the full 30 kilobyte package. Um, and uh, he was inspired by another project called Alpine um, that kind of mimicked Vue's approach, but in a smaller kind of smaller library, a little bit closer to the metal. Um, so micro libraries, they're really cool, but they, um, they still have some of the problems in my mind that these older libraries do, which is that they're shipping a bunch of abstractions and they're effectively putting kind of the rendering and runtime in the browser, um, for stuff that in a more classical architecture used to happen on the server. Um, you know, back in the day when everything was like PHP driven, um, or like .NET. And, um, uh, so I think the other category that I find even more exciting, um, I just broadly refer to them as pre-compilers and it covers a wide suite of things. So on one hand, you've got stuff like Svelte, which is really, really neat. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Svelte allows you to, um, create, uh, create views the same way you might in something akin to React or Vue. It's a little bit different, but you've got the same kind of basic concept where you've got a component and some state and you know you specify some things that kind of happen when the state changes. And then instead of that being the thing you ship, um, you compile these .svelt files into um, the thing that actually ships. And what Svelte does is it takes all that code and it spits out mostly HTML, mostly pre-rendered with a little bit of um, honestly like old school DOM manipulation style vanilla JavaScript, the kind that you might hand code if you were still doing things that way. And so it gives you the authoring experience of working with a library, but gives the user something that's going to be a lot more resilient um, and um, uh, way more performant. Um, they're currently working on a new tool called SvelteKit that adds routing and adds some really interesting progressive enhancement features. Um, so that's really neat. And then there's new kid on the block. Um, I always forget if it's called Astro or Atomic. Please give me uh, give me a minute. I want to say it's called Atomic. There are two of them. Um, Astro. Okay, it is Astro is the one I'm thinking of. Um, here we go. And I apologize. So it literally just came out like, as far as I know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so Astro is really neat. Um, it takes the concept that Svelte had and takes it to the next level and says, hey, so what if instead of having to use like our own syntax here, you could use anything you want? So with Astro, you could take a card component from Vue and a tab component from React and some Svelte file you started working on and mash them all together in one project and compile it into mostly HTML with a little bit of JavaScript. And it's going to strip out all of the libraries that you put in there and like output the things that they're actually doing into close to browser native JavaScript. Um, uh, so it gives you like, if you're a team that really enjoys that authoring experience, like let's say you're already all in on react 
you can still use React and give your users a more resilient and um, performant experience by layering Astro on top. Um, uh, Jason Langsdorf uh, from Netlify uh, played around with this just a couple of weeks ago. He took this net uh, next.js site that he had, um, ported it over to Astro, used 90% of the same component code, and um, ended up spitting out something that had 90% less uh, client-side JavaScript and a page load um, time that was 30% faster than it was before. Um, so really just like big wins all around with almost no additional work or overhead. Um, so I really like tools like that. And then on the other kind of end of the spectrum, you have, there's still technically pre-compilers, but the authoring experience is very different. Um, static site generators. So you've got things like Hugo, Jekyll. Uh, I used to call them new kid on the block, 11T, but um, 11T has been around for a while now and they're doing yeah. great things. They just hit version one, which is awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, those are really, really powerful too. Um, and I think for me, the thing that um, the thing that I'm most excited about is tools that allow developers to work in a flexible way that fits their needs but doesn't make the end user of the thing that they've built pay for that convenience. That's always been my problem with a lot of these bigger libraries is, you know, I'm getting a benefit allegedly as a developer and I'm passing that cost on to my user. Uh, literally pay or uh, trade off? F figuratively pay in the Got sense it. of, um, uh, you know, slower load times, potential crashes on older devices and lower bandwidth kind of situations. Um, uh, yeah, not, not in the monetary sense. Um, but you know, in the, in the user experience kind of sense. So yeah. I gain something as a developer, it costs you something as the person who uses what I built. Yeah. Um, it might, I mean, where I was, what I was fishing for maybe was like, ooh. there are, there are like you know literal costs no, you're right. if you, like if you mess up like if you're you know you're going to have to pay for a lot of different things um well i actually didn't even you're saying it made me think about um you know for a lot of people who are on like limited bandwidth yeah. kind of data plans and things like that there is a literal cost for shipping all this all this javascript um not even getting into like if you want to get really heady about it you could make a uh uh I think a really valid argument about the environmental cost of just shipping that much code, like storing it, sending it down the wire, the amount of electricity devices used yeah. to process and run it. Like, um, yeah, it's, do, uh, it's just turtles all the, all the way down. Yeah. It's a turtle. Yeah. No, people do that all the time, uh, with crypto and, you know, yeah. uh, in my opinion, justifiably so. So yeah, no, I'm not going down a crypto rabbit hole. Believe me, we're not, I'm not there yet. <laughs> Um, so, so you really want to get angry emails though, Brian, we can't. I don't believe me, which I really don't. Um, the, so one thing I was thinking like is, um, we started by saying like, Hey, there's maybe, should we consider Svelte big four? And you said, I consider that part of a new wave. Do I have that right? Or so, and then, um, so we talked about what that new wave was, uh, the pre-compilers and then, um, you know, smaller libraries. And to me, that still sounds, all of that still sounds pretty complex. Yes. 
Um, so there's another, yeah. I think it's a longer term play. Um, but I am, um, one of the things I've noticed is, and I am by no means, I actually probably didn't even notice this. I probably had someone point it out to me and now I can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got a little bit of a, like, I built this kind of thing going on, yeah. but, um, uh, the industry moves in circles and what often happens because the standards process is necessarily slow. Um, you have a bunch of stuff people want to do that the platform doesn't support yet, but that could be bolted on through tooling. And so people build a bunch of tools to make the things that they want to do work in like a reasonable, um, way in the browser. And then eventually sometime down the road, the browser catches up and then there's a really slow kind of petering off of the tooling as more people realize they don't need it anymore. Um, and the most recent example of this, I shouldn't say most recent, but I think the, the shiniest example of this is jQuery. So if you're not old and gray in the beard, like I am, you may not remember the web before jQuery and how absolutely abysmal it was to try and write JavaScript for that web where Internet Explorer and Firefox and like Netscape, they all did think things their own way and didn't care what the other one was doing. Um, and uh, so you'd have code that was littered with a bunch of if else kind of statements. So, you know, if, if the browser supports this method, use it, if not use this other one. Um, you couldn't get an element in the UI by class unless you got all of the elements by a specific like tag name and then looped through all of them to check if they had a class on them using some complicated regex thing. Like it was just, it was a pain. And then jQuery came around and was like, hey, we've abstracted all that stuff away for you. Use these methods instead. They're really well documented, by the way. Let's, um, you know, now you can just, you can write it once, it'll work everywhere. And that was just like, a revelation. And then years later, we got ES5, which took all of these, many of these conventions from jQuery and baked them right into the platform. So we got Query Selector and Query Selector All that let you find elements in the UI by any CSS selector. We got the class list API, so you could add and remove stuff really easily. We got better methods for looping over arrays and making changes to them. Um, and uh, it, um, it just got really, really good. And so I see what's happening now with all of this tooling um, as kind of another, kind of another, I don't know if you'd call this the crest or the trough. I guess it really depends on how you look at it in terms of the wave of development. We're either at like the high or the low. But um, <laughs> yeah, but, no, I understand um, that. What I'm, what I'm envisioning is that more and more of the stuff that libraries do is going to get absorbed into the platform as time goes on. It's a very slow process and the things they're doing are way more complicated than what jQuery was doing back in the day. So I think it'll be kind of a slower process to figure out what what that really looks like. But what most of these tools do in my perspective is pave cow paths, kind of show the way things could be, it allows developers to like kind of in the wild experiment with some ideas and then be like, this works, this doesn't, this is a better way. Um, and then hopefully the best stuff kind of floats to the top and gets pulled into the platform. Um, so I would love, for example, to see um, uh, some sort of native DOM diffing. Like that's like really at the heart of what a lot of these libraries do is like, here's how the UI looks, here's how it should looks 
make them the same with as little like effort as possible. And I would love some sort of browser native way to do that. Um, maybe with HTML strings because template literals are awesome and it would be really cool to get like a JSX like kind of experience right in the browser. Um, uh, one of the things that's in the works that a lot of libraries do um, is um, sanitizing HTML strings so that um, you don't accidentally cross-site scripting attack your users with like malicious third-party code. So a lot of libraries have a mechanism ba baked in to like remove dangerous stuff out of the HTML before actually rendering it. Um, and there is a, um, a browser API in the works right now to do that. Um, at present, if you're not using a library, you have to use something like Dom Purify to handle that for you. Um, uh, or use some really, really kind of onerous manual creation of elements um, to avoid kind of the, the danger there. Um, uh, those are the two big ones. I um, I did the classic Chris Ferdinandi lost my train of thought halfway through. So Brian, I'll shut up. And if you have any anything you want to respond to, I'm happy to. <laughs> no, uh, actually, the uh, it's why I ask those big questions. It happens all the time where I go like, yeah. here's there's no right answer. Go for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. So we have reached the point of the show where guests plug things. Um, so is there anything that you think people should go people or maybe other people you think don't get enough attention um that's kind of the part of the i like to wrap Ooh, it up this way yeah yeah that's really nice i really like that um yeah great question um so um yeah two things um first um if you um if you found anything that we talked about on the show interesting or um or if you just disagreed with me and want to shout at me on the internet, um, head over to gomakethings.com slash podrocket. Um, I'm going to have a bunch of resources related to stuff that we talked about, um, links to any of the kind of things I mentioned, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff if you want to dig deeper in here. You can also find my contact information. So if you want to shout at me on Twitter about how wrong I was, you can do that as well. Um, uh, so um, yeah, that. And then um, for... Um, People I don't feel they get enough attention. I actually really like that question. I've never had anyone mention that before. Um, I would love to direct people to um, Stephanie Eccles um, over at moderncss.dev. Um, she also has another really awesome, super useful tool called um, small CSS at smolcss.dev. Um, uh, so... Much like I spend a lot of time talking about how much JavaScript has evolved over the years and how much you can do just what the browser gives you out of the box, um, Stephanie does the same thing for CSS. Um, and um, I love CSS, but am not super great at it. And so I find myself going to Stephanie's sites to copy-paste stuff from her cheat sheets all the time. Um, just an amazing resource for... Um, uh, for all things modern CSS related. Um, so uh, if you haven't heard of her yet and you want to learn more about how to write awesome CSS, I would recommend giving her stuff uh, a look. Very cool. We'll we'll put all that stuff in, the, in our show notes as well if, uh, Fantastic. if you're in the car or outside for some reason. Um, but that was a joke. It just didn't work. Uh, <laughs> Chris, a pleasure having you on. Brian, thanks so much for having me. This was great. I really appreciate it. Cool. See ya.
Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. Find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter, or you could always email me, even though that's not a popular option. It's Brian at Log Rocket. <laughs>